0: Welcome to CPO Open Mic, the podcast series that brings you experts in procurement. Feline CPO, Mike Schiappa, sits down with leaders all over the industry to chat about their areas of expertise, passions, and a lot more. Tune in to every episode each month by following Mike on
1: LinkedIn and at VLINEVMS on Twitter.
0: Hello everyone, Mike Schiappa here, Chief Procurement Officer at Beeline, and welcome back to the podcast series, CPO Open Mic. On today's episode, I'm really excited to be joined by Ryan Kretschmer and Dan Cabal of Beeline. I've known these guys for, for a number of years, and the cool thing about this podcast is there's a couple of firsts for me. So this is the first time having two guests on the show at once, and also the first time that some fellow Beeliners are going to be on the podcast as well, so really excited. I wanted to have both Dan and, and Ryan on because these guys are just the best in the business, the best, and they're right here on my team. So they they bring a tremendous amount of value to the industry. They have a wealth of knowledge in the industry, and having been on the client side for several years, and and now on the supplier side, and I just felt like they they needed to be heard by my audience. So. We're going to have a really great session today, and uh, again, really looking forward to it. So by way of introduction, Ryan Kretschmer has been involved in the contingent workforce industry for a little over a decade now, starting out as a customer support representative with Deco Solutions and then Pontoon. He moved through several different positions there before beginning a new career on the client side with Cisco as a program analyst. After a couple of years at Cisco, Ryan moved to MetLife to help implement and lead their staff augmentation, resource tracking, and services procurement program. He is now with Beeline overseeing the services procurement and resource tracking strategy. Dan Cablol is the director of product strategy for Beeline and is responsible for designing the next generation enterprise workforce product solutions, including the launch of Beeline's upcoming diversity, equity and inclusion product portfolio. Most recently, Dan led Beeline's large acquisition of Joined Up, which is on track to be another industry-first purpose-built light industrial solution that's gonna be fully integrated into Beeline's extended workforce platform. Prior to Beeline, Dan was global head of external labor workforce programs at Thomson Reuters. And in 2017, Dan pioneered the first fully integrated direct sourcing program, which fulfilled over 50% of all openings and really had a focus on talent. And We'll talk about that today. Dan started his career back in 2005 in the non-employee industry at J. P. Morgan and has uh, spent some time at TIA and also Citibank. So gentlemen, welcome to my podcast.
2: Thanks for having us. Yeah, excited to be here, especially since we're the first double guests, so. <laughs> <laughs> That's right.
0: <laughs> so how are you guys doing? I see you've been doing some traveling as of late, things getting back to a little bit of normalcy for you?
1: Yeah. Yeah. For me, things are getting back to normal. I just got back from a trip in, into New York City earlier this week, and it was great. feel like it's getting back to normal there in the city a little bit. Definitely still not to the level it used to be when i went up there before but it's getting there so it felt good and felt good to be around large amount of people again and <laughs> it was it was nice
2: yeah same here i've been able to get to our jack's office a lot i'm actually here now i'm excited to not be stuck on a video conference speaking with people that i really need and value on the team you know you forget how much emotion you can convey in building trust in person versus virtually so yeah very very thankful we're getting back to somewhat normal
0: same with me. I hit the road a little bit as well. And it's really great to just get out there and collaborate with people and see people and see them and feel the energy and all that kind of stuff. Because I think we, we all feed off of that. So both of you guys have been with Beeline for a little bit now. So Dan, I know you've been with Beeline for a couple of years now. And Ryan, is uh, you're approaching one year with Beeline as well. And I'm actually one year for me in a couple of weeks. I wanted to just dig in a little bit, just high-level personally, like how has the transition gone from moving from the, the client side to the supplier side of Beeline? So Dan, you want to kick us off with that?
2: Yeah, for me, it's it was really eye-opening to see how much goes into the technology side of programs. I mean, the technology is part of all contingent labor programs, and I've certainly been a loud voice going, we should be able to do this, or we should be able to do that. And I think you know, especially being in product strategy, user journeys and understanding the client mission has been eye-opening for me. You know, it, I got to see more than just what I've been exposed to, even though I've managed four programs, I now get to interact with, we have over 300 clients. So I can listen to a different story, a different flavor almost every day, which is really exciting.
1: Yeah, no, yeah. that's great. I have similar feedback as well. How about yourself, Ryan? For me, from a Personal level, it was actually a bit larger of a transition than I was thinking it would be, maybe just a little bit of hubris on my part. But (laughs) my life on the client side was was really focused on operations, escalations, and people management. My job here on the tech side is, it's it's definitely more focused on product strategy and product management. It was moving from very tactical with a little bit of strategic to now very strategic with a little bit of tactical. So it was definitely more of a, a rocky transition than I was expecting but I'll welcome one.
0: What about just in terms of transitioning from larger organizations to a beeline, just company switch? What do you what are you seeing that's different, good, bad, or indifferent?
1: There's a very much lower amount of politics and politicking <laughs> required, <laughs> needed to get what you need to done, which is very nice. But there's also uh, a difference in resources as well. So on the large corporate side, obviously a very large company amazing shared resources that you have at your disposal for a little upfront cost. And so anything that you could kind of dream, you could go out and do rather here with a smaller company. It's definitely a little bit different. Your resources are limited and you more need to shift them into the areas of business that require them rather to maybe what you require as an individual. So that that was tough at first.
0: Yeah. What about you, Dan?
2: For me, it's been exciting because when I was on the program side, I was uh, involved in a lot of the strategy behind the programs, and I always had moments of, "I wish we could do this differently," or "I wish this wasn't the way it was," or "Why is this this way?" So when I came to to Beeline and I moved away from being a client, and now I'm on on the Beeline side. I feel empowered to make some change, and I feel especially in the role I'm in, we can sort of take our learnings as being past clients and put focus and share those stories internally with Beeliners. I was surprised that. The tenure of Beeliners is so substantial. I mean, people have been here a long time and they have a lot of knowledge. And it's really good to get that conversation going with Beeliners to say, hey, this is how I feel from the client side, and for them to give me the long term perspective from the technology side, and then take that and try to build something to make everyone happy. I've been excited to be working with the people at Beeline and, and doing that stuff here.
0: Yeah, no, that's a great point. I think there's a lot of tenured folks on the team. And there's, like you guys know, over the past year, year and a half, we've invested quite a bit in bringing in new talent, a lot from the client side, a lot from the industry and what have you, which is really helping us in in a lot of different areas, which is really exciting. And we're going to continue to do that. So that's cool. I want to dig into the corporate side a little bit more. So you guys. Like myself, and you talk to a lot of clients, you talk to a lot of folks that are in the industry on a daily basis, which is quite different than being on the client side where you're focused on your program, you're focused on the four walls that are around you. Very different that that what we're in right now. So, what are some of your specific observations that you've seen as you've you've know, talked to hundreds of different clients? What are some things that really stick out at you? Many challenges or things that they're doing well, or things that you've learned over the past year or two. Ryan, you want to take that one?
1: Sure. So exactly what you said, Like you're so focused on just your program usually when we were on the client side. And, and now, yeah, we've, I've talked to probably like 45 or so different clients through the formal interview process. And what was most shocking to me was I've just been lucky. In the past, I worked for the Cisco and MetLife programs, both of which had dedicated leads. They were just focused on contingent labor, the non-employee stuff. And they also had substantial teams provided to to help support those programs. And I was honestly a bit shocked that that is really just not the case across the board. Actually, I would say it's a rarity. Oftentimes, I see program leads who they're just not responsible for non-employee workforce. They're responsible for other categories as well if they're sitting in procurement or other areas of responsibility in general. And a lot of times the teams are pretty small in comparison to the volume of work that they have in front of them. So you see a lot of resource constraint and you don't see a lot of centralized focus on the program because they have other things to do. So I was, I was pretty shocked by that. that. one That
2: one definitely took me off guard.
0: Yeah, that's really interesting. I want to dig into that a little bit, but I want to let Dan comment on that first question.
2: Yeah, I think what I've noticed is clients have the desire to know more about the talent workforce and, and to Ryan's point, yeah, they may be working on multiple categories and, and may not be set up for success when it comes to what their intentions are, but we're seeing, especially on the B-line side with the clients I speak to today, talent is the number one focus, right? Finding people, retaining people, understanding the workforce, and even getting to things which I think are great understanding and building a more inclusive workspace, right? So bringing in diversity metrics, bringing in quality metrics. I think I'm excited to see programs, even though I feel like we have a duty of helping them get there, I think they're asking to get there. They're trying to get there. So that's one thing I've, I've noticed and really appreciate.
0: Yeah, that's really interesting. I think, so I'll go back to you, Ryan, your point of program leads, but just on that talent front, Dan, I think Absolutely, the, the discussions are happening more around talent, but I feel like sometimes it's a lot of talk and not enough action or execution against what it is we're talking about and trying to get that talent. So, what are some of the things that you're hearing in terms of not allowing them to to execute at a higher level? Is it is it uh, management not putting enough of a spotlight on it? Is it organizational breakdowns within some of these clients or prospects or just in the industry overall? what are, Can you pinpoint any areas that might be prohibiting that?
2: I think the if I go back, and again, I'm speaking from my experience alone, but a lot of contingent labor programs, and this is sort of what Ryan was saying too, they have a procurement philosophy in managing the contract labor population. So it's very much a supplier-based approach. And we get wrapped up, and I've done this in my career, I've gotten wrapped up in the non-employee workforce is what I'm responsible for. Let me go and enact supplier process to manage the workforce. And we need ad- we need accurate supplier process. We need to make sure contracts and supplier agreements, things like that are made, make sense. But as a customer, I think they're saying now that those procurement processes are good. They're not going away. Suppliers are not going to go away and not be the representative of that talent. But knowing that these workers are making up more and more of an active population of a company. So we saw what the rise of the non-employee workforce over the years where now it's people throw numbers around, but it's like 40, 50% of a company can be non-employee comprised. Right. And so even though these people are still not employees, they still come through staffing suppliers and they should, how can they do more with that population and learn more about them? That's where we're, we're at now. And that's where I'm seeing the the need to, to provide help to clients and build products that help that as well. hmm
0: yeah, that makes sense. Ryan, you have any thoughts on that?
2: Yeah,
1: I mean, I'm in agreement with Dan. I think too often it's treated just as another basic, almost like direct purchasing category. But for whatever reason it is, these programs, they're different in the fact that not a lot of other areas of purchasing are you gonna own every touch point from the beginning of the process, possibly sourcing, all the way down to payment of the supplier. Like a lot of these contingent programs you're overseeing that entire end to end process. And it's a lot more than just sourcing and contract negotiation. You're also owning a significant contributor to the company's success. If these folks are making up half of your workforce, that's these guys aren't doing unimportant tasks. They're not just out there doing things that have no meaning. They're contributing a lot to your business. And to treat them just as a purchase and a negotiation, and let them execute and move on past that and not worry about what you're getting after the contract. So it it should be concerning. It should be an item of concern for you or your leadership team.
0: Yeah, that's interesting. I I, want to go back to to what you mentioned before, Ryan, on the program leads and what you've seen. And I think it's mind boggling to me because having been in that seat at MetLife a few years ago, managing the extended workforce, I think just hearing that from you where it just, I'm kind of putting words in your mouth you saying that there's not enough focus in terms of organizationally where there have enough resources or enough talent or enough focus in that one specific area where they might be resource constraint, et cetera. So that kind of bugs me a little bit. But what? Why do you think that is? Is it just a change management is it program leads not being empowered enough to bring these things to the forefront because we always talk about procurement being a laggard and in this one here it's like everything is right there in front of you talent is hugely important to organizations but then you tell me that on your conversations that program leads don't have enough support around it so how help me like think that through a little bit
1: yeah I thought about it for some time and trying to figure it out myself because it does bug me just as much. And I think part of it is tradition. One, because traditionally, companies have always been really concerned about their talent. When they think talent, they're thinking about their full-time employees. And then staff aug temporary work, it was always like, oh, okay. There was this poor idea of it's lower positions, it's things that aren't critical to the business, et cetera. And that's just not the case anymore. But that same Sometimes I think that mindset has just persisted. And that's why I call it tradition because we just handle these things the way we do. So I I think that's one of them. And then the other thing that I think pops up and is the main reason for this is it's just not tracked to the level of detail that it should be. And what I mean by that is if one of the things that I would love, some companies do it, but I would love if all public companies were required to list out the details of what they spend on third-party labor and contingent workforce in their expense category, their financial statements. Mm -hmm. Because then if they had to do so, there would be a lot more focus from the C-suite level on these line items and understanding what goes into them and how they can affect them and what levers they can pull. But I think for the most part, it's tradition. And then this stuff just gets swept under the rug. People don't think about it. And that's Mm -hmm. why it always ends up with just somebody in procurement as a category to manage.
0: Yeah, my, my my fear is that it's going to be too late in some instances when they literally cannot find the right talent to get the work done in these various lines of business. And that's inevitably going to happen to some corporations for sure. And if it's not already happening, right? Uh, so digging into some of your... I won't call it passions, but what you guys have done a lot of work on, we talk about direct sourcing and talent and Ryan on the SOW or the services procurement side of the house. So Dan, on the direct sourcing side of the house, obviously direct sourcing has been around for a while and you've seen the evolution of it. You were one of the first to get that in place at, at Thompson Reuters. How, how is it? How has it changed over the last few years? And do you see a lot of adoption? Do you see clients utilizing direct sourcing in in the right way? And why is that important?
2: When I think of a direct sourcing, I think about why it mattered to me in the beginning was it's another talent strategy. And so what's exciting about direct sourcing as a person that worked in programs where procurement methodology or procurement mindset dominated, it was the first time That I thought about talent management in the non-employee space and so if you think about this idea of we have programs that as a program manager you require your managers to go into a, a tool to build a requisition to make sure it's budget approved to make sure it's sent out to staffing vendors and then you wait for clients for candidates to show up and I always thought about what happens when a supplier gets that job and how do the candidates actually get to my organization And then what are the different flavors of candidates? Are there people that were looking to actually work for me already? Are there, is it really a pull? Like the suppliers really have to go find people that want to work for me. And so asking those questions about how do you attract talent is one of the things you should consider if you're thinking about direct sourcing. I think the way it's changing now is companies are not treating direct sourcing as a deal breaker or a program disruptor. I think at the beginning, people called it a big disruption of how, I don't think it's a disruptor. I actually think In the future, direct sourcing has a space for staffing suppliers to leverage the same type of mindset. Really, direct sourcing is a way for a pool of talent to be made available to a client to make decisions on. And that's the difference, right? In the past, a client doesn't look at the pool of talent. They look at the pool of suppliers and say, find me two candidates, send it to me. And then they look at that small group of people that the suppliers determined are the right fit. The future is letting the, the talent find their way to your organization, whether it's through a staffing vendor, because I know a lot of contractors like staffing vendors, they have a long standing relationship that should be respected. It's not so much of who represents the candidate. I think that definitely is important, but it's about where these people are coming from, why they're coming to your organization, how they're being positioned to your organization. And then as a client wanting to make the best decision as to who, who you should hire. If you hire somebody through a staffing vendor, that's fine. I mean, that's good. That works. That's the dominant piece of most programs today. But at least give yourself a chance as a client to say, where is talent available? What type of talent is available? And let me see all my options when it comes to hiring, not just what a requisition gets me. Yeah.
0: Yeah. That's a great way of looking at it. I wrote down talent strategy on my notes here. I think just thinking through some of the clients and some of the, just the network that I speak with it, asking them about what their talent strategy is. And unfortunately, a lot of them don't have a really nice laid out plan of what that talent strategy looks like. And it doesn't have to be the total workforce management or all these other crazy terms that they pull out there, but just what is your talent strategy? What are the different sources? What what are the different channels? Like don't overcomplicate things, right? I think a lot of uh, senior folks do overcomplicate things. And I understand that they're serving a lot of different leaders within their organizations as well, which can be challenging, but having some basic fundamental roadmap around what your talent strategy is really important. I think the other thing too, Dan, on your point around specifically direct sourcing, a lot of what I remember being on the client side was direct sourcing cost savings, right? Direct sourcing save money. And a lot of procurement folks still like that. But I think that's shifting a little bit more. Would you agree with that?
2: Yeah, direct sourcing has the potential to save you money. But I think there's more of an efficiency and quality metric there. So if you think about the three factors, time, quality, and cost, of course, from a procurement mindset, cost will always be something that procurement professionals have to meet. We have savings targets, or at least when I was on the client side, we had savings targets to hit. But ultimately, your internal customer, which is the manager and and the company you work for, the success of your company is now becoming more and more predicated on the quality of talent within the organization. Well, if your company is using more and more non-employees, then it's up to you being in procurement to make sure the quality of that population is elevated and not just driven by price because you you want to make sure that quality is thought about and, and time is thought about. And I think that's the shift. It's companies are looking at direct sourcing as another channel to allow them to find talent potentially faster and to find better quality talent because now they're looking at all sources of talent because they can see more available talent. And then if they can save money, I think that's great. In the environment we're in right now coming out of the the last two years of the crazy world we're in and seeing what's happening to the economy today, I don't want to be prescriptive in saying that rates are going to go up or down, but I'm, I'd feel pretty confident if I were a client knowing that I have all available channels of finding talent. And if one of those channels can save me money, awesome. But the fact that I just have another way of finding talent it is something that's valuable. So I think customers are setting up direct sourcing programs with the mindset of, this is another path for me to find talent. And if I save money, that's great. Yeah, I love that. It's
0: funny you bring it up like that, like speed and timing and then the quality piece. I've been preaching for years you get the right people, you get the right process and the right technology in place, and you get the right operating in, in place, savings will organically be achieved, right? So savings is always kind of like, it's there, we know it, but you got to have all these other things in place and doing it at a very high level, and the savings will organically be achieved, in my opinion. So switching gears a little bit, Ryan, I want to dig into a uh, SOW statement of work management services procurement a little bit. I know you've been in that world for for quite some time. You did a, a lot of impressive work at MetLife, as well as over this past year interviewing clients and learning a lot about what's going on in the world outside of the MetLife world. So what what are your observations? What do, would you like to talk about there?
1: Yeah, I mean observations from it. It's going to be building on, on uh, what I said a little earlier, and that's really about. Just the management of things from an end-to-end process. So I think what I noticed a lot and what a lot of the headaches are or the motivation for people bringing in like a technology like Beeline or really just bringing in a program, regardless of the technology, is the same old song and dance. It usually starts with a really large outsource engagement. So we can say IT outsourcing, for example. They've outsourced a large part of their IT business to a third-party supplier. They did it for a fixed amount over, we'll say three years. And at the end of those three years, they ran over by 20, 30%. And they couldn't really answer the question of why that happened. What led to the overage and what it seems to me, more of these conversations I have is that there's great processes in place at most places, most clients and companies for sourcing work and contracting work. But after that, the centralized function of sourcing and contracting is gone and you move into a decentralized management of the execution against that contract. And so for me, the thing that doesn't infuriate me, but definitely nags at me is you spend all this time doing these sourcing activities and especially a lot of time in the contract. And maybe you spend a lot of time putting together amazing KPIs and service level agreements and you really patting yourself on the back and you're saying, wow, this is going to be great. But then when you let it go, the people who execute against that work are usually in the line of business. They're the ones working with the supplier on a transaction level. They have no idea what's in the contract most of the time. They don't know their rights, so to speak. Their bill of rights as the client with the supplier, what they should expect from the supplier, what levels of quality, experience, all that good stuff. And then if something does go wrong, how do what's their avenues of recompense? What, what can they do to make things right? And so what is this upfront, usually pretty solid processes because procurement's decently mature now. They fall apart during execution. And that's where you see like these run runovers of budgets. You see these horribly tense relationships with suppliers at the executive level and their account executive level because things are going so badly. So Really to me, that's what SOW management is. It's really understanding what is the agreement with the supplier? What should things look like as we move through execution? And then making sure that you receive that and that if you don't, you understand why you didn't. It's really explaining the why behind just that tens of millions or hundreds of millions of dollars in one general ledger account.
0: Yeah, no, it's amazing. You you talked about the client going through A lot of the legwork, doing the sourcing, doing the contracting, patting themselves on the back for doing all this wonderful job on the front end. And then, which is great, which is a good thing to do. And then it gets, then it gets tossed over to the line of business and they have to manage that contract and they have to do their job within the line of business. And they have a job to do and their job is not to manage the contract or manage to the contract. So it's a really complicated situation that you put the line of business in a lot of cases. And some people within the lines of business do have a good procurement acumen or project management acumen, et cetera. So I I mean, it's, I'm talking in general here, but there are some folks that are good at that, but generally speaking, I couldn't agree with you more. We saw that firsthand. We see it on a daily basis now and with people that I talk to and clients that I talk to as well, some of the pushback for trying to drive more through a services procurement type of model is exactly that. The line of business wants to keep their portfolio of business in their world, the way that they do that. Now, that might be okay, but the statistics show that Working in a different operating model, you're going to get better controls. You're going to get better quality. You're going to see all these other benefits, even on the costs associated with it, potential savings, all that kind of stuff. And just making it easier to operate as an organization with the right controls in place is, um, is what I've been talking to a lot of these clients about. So it's really interesting. But I think when you think about that, it's like, let those people do their job right? Let them do what they're supposed to do at a very high level and put a right, put the right operating model layer in between to, to make sure that those controls are in place.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's very interesting, especially talking about the LOBs. It's true. The LOBs want to maintain that control and management over those areas with their suppliers. And it's one of the most interesting things about this space. There's something so personal about it. Yeah, People get very uh, emotional and passionate when you start going into these areas and looking at their suppliers and stuff like that. And they're like, no, don't touch. That's my space. Leave it alone. I'll manage it. I don't want anybody else looking at it. Yeah. And that's,
0: I mean, that's common across multiple categories as well. It's not just the contingent world or the extended workforce. It's across multiple categories, but I feel like it's highlighted even more in, in this area. So I want to switch gears a little bit here. Why are you guys in this space? What drives you? You you guys got your hands in a lot of different things. You've been through quite a bit over the last several years in terms of your responsibilities and what you're doing now. But what do you think about when you wake up? What drives you to do what you're doing now in this area And, and working at Beeline as well? I'm really curious about that. Dan, why don't you take a crack at it?
2: what drives me now is for a long time, we had, uh, I mean, to speak directly to Beeline, right? The the VMS itself, any VMS uh, has been very monolithic and you go in there more operationally, there's you know not a lot of strategy in, in, in systems. And what I'm excited about, what I think about is as we are a platform now, and as we're moving to more experience-based products, so realizing the different people that go into Beeline and do different things, thinking through each of those rabbit holes is really exciting to me, right? Now I'm like, oh, if people are excited, and this is coming from client uh, response. So when clients tell me, and I ask them about their goals, and they say, these are our three goals. I'm like, oh, wow, that's very specific. And then I say, is that something you're actually focused on in your company? And this is where you see, I think you're seeing the shift in programs. The evolving programs have people in roles that are defined to strategies that are not just supplier strategies. And I think MSPs are actually also shifting. And I think you're seeing a lot of value from MSPs and how they approach talent as well. Uh, so just I wake up and I think about what can I do today to help the clients meet their goals? And I go down rabbit holes of, well, if we built something and you know, I'm in strategy, so I get to ideate products and then deliver them for deliver the business case to say we should build it which I love, right? It's super creative. keeps me honest though, because I don't get to build everything I think is a great idea, but <laughs> I do love pitching those ideas. And when we find that nugget and when I see other people at Beeline go, oh, that's awesome. Or what's even better is when I hear from our RMs, our comms, people that interact with clients on a daily basis. And they're like, that is a great idea. And here's three clients that you should talk to get more information that gets me jazzed up, right? I mean, that's just validation, but also... A path to learn more stuff, so uh, I I really love that.
0: That's awesome. I love it. What about you, Ryan? Why? Why am I doing this?
1: Yeah, why? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I got started in this space when I was, I guess, when I was twenty, as a part-time job when I was in college, and uh, it was not what I was thinking I was going to do. I honestly thought I was going to go into private equity. I went to school for finance and. Yeah. And I just started out on customer support and I really enjoyed the technology portion of it. I worked with Fieldglass and Provade tools at the time. So I didn't have, I didn't really touch Beeline, but I just love the tech. I love how it was set up. I thought it was like a very clean process, you know, how it's supposed to work anyway. <laughs> and so I just loved customer support and, and users calling in and, and needing help and then being able to help them. It's a great feeling when somebody calls you so extremely frustrated and you're able to help them out and make their day a little bit better. And as I stayed in the industry, that feeling stayed as well. So I moved from helping specific end users to more helping out on a program side, and then moved back to helping out on the client side and helping out like the different lines of business and stuff, get done what they need to get done. And it was still the same feeling, but it's just different levels. And people come to you and they need a lot of help. and you can provide it to them. That's really why I've stayed in the industry. I've never lost that feeling. And I've been given opportunities to do it at higher and higher levels. And now with Beeline, I've been able to come on the tech side this last year. And finally, like those tools that I really almost grew up enjoying, as weird as that sounds, <laughs> uh, I finally get to work on one. And I finally stop having to manipulate kind of what's there to make it work for somebody. And instead I can actually work on the foundational piece of it and hopefully get that foundation to work right off the bat or be in a good position to, to help as much people as possible. I mean, that's really this job. You go out, you talk to people, you figure out well, what's giving you a headache, what's, what's giving you a heartburn every day, what's killing you by a thousand cuts, and then try <laughs> to work it out to, to being able to put together something that can hopefully make them happy or at least reduce the stress in their day. It's a really great feeling.
0: That's awesome. I love that. And in the impact that you guys have and that we all have is very rewarding, right? Actually being able to feel that impact and see that impact. But the interesting thing when you talked about just helping people out, you've been doing that your entire career, the same with you, Dan, the same with me. It's just... In different areas on the client side, it was more defined, like you're collaborating with your internal clients, whereas now you're collaborating with your external clients that they're all clients, right? Everybody's a client and you're trying to help them out and bringing their operating model to the next level, their success to the next level, just like you were doing internally at prior organizations. That's what we would, that's what we would do at MetLife. It was the same thing. Making our lines of business better at what they do and making it easier for them to uh, to get their jobs done at, at, at a higher level. That's really cool. The one last thing I wanted to bring up, and Dan, you brought this up. You talked about goals within some of these clients. And I think one of the one of the things that I'm seeing in 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 respect to specific goals that these organizations have, it's all across the board, right? Some have clearly defined roles, some don't have clearly defined goals. And everywhere in between. And I think some of the clients have very lofty goals that, quite frankly, I don't think they can achieve in a short amount of time. And some just don't have the goals that I think they should. I'm just curious, your dealings with clients and just your network, do you feel like a lot of these programs have clearly defined goals? And are those goals lofty enough? Are they impactful enough? Or are they just a the same speed to get somebody in and just the normal KPIs. What are you seeing out there?
2: I think there's definitely a flavor across the board of some clients are, or or some programs are definitely stuck with, there's a lot going on. And so they don't have the time to really think about those lofty ideals. Part of what I strive to do is sometimes I'll introduce clients to other clients to say, you should talk to them about this because they're thinking about some ideas that may solve some of the headache that you're bringing up. So listening to customer problems is actually how I start thinking about, and I always write down the problems, right? I always write down, this is a problem, this, and I have problems that I've seen in my career. And then if somebody has a great idea, whether it's in B-line or whether it's another customer asking questions, giving people the confidence to go a little further, push the envelope, make them lofty. I love directional work. I mean, you want to directionally try to go away. And if you get there, with a zigzag, that's fine, but at least you're moving in the right direction. I feel like a lot of clients are trying to identify goals around talent. They lack the tools to do that. And I think that's where we're, as a Beeline person, we're looking at that, we hear them, we're building things to help that. I think there's also, uh, and Ryan can speak to this, because I think Ryan is the expert on, Ryan's probably the only person I know that loves service procurement (laughs) super, like a lot. (laughs) I think there's a lot of intention around the contract management space and the larger supplier deals to make sense of that. Because if you think about traditional contingent labor programs, it's really been about individual time and material um, things. And there's just, I'll say this, it's very hard to understand what happens in that space if you don't live it. And so that when we talk about goals in that space, I don't hear a lot because I don't know if a lot of people are living in that space yet. I think that's a huge opportunity for people to really dig in And get excited about it i know ryan's proof right he's dug in he's gotten excited about it for me it's again i think there's going to be a shift of companies hopefully will empower their procurement organizations or their contingent labor programs to be more directionally focused in terms of bigger tasks those should drive to bigger goals like how do we attract people how do we retain our talent because it's expensive to replace talent How do we leverage larger supply relationships that can help us offset the need for individualized talent, which is your services procurement space? There's a lot there.
0: Yeah, no, there definitely is. Ryan, any final thoughts on that?
2: Yeah, I
1: mean, uh, a lot of times you just don't see uh, detailed goals at all. Usually the two goals I see are, all right, we're in a tough macro environment, so cut costs. Yeah. Or the other goal is we're not in a tough macro environment, so I don't really care. Those seem to be the two, but you don't like dance brought up earlier is, all right, some companies are at 40, 50% of their workforces is contingent folks, not employees. And so really when you set down your corporate goals in the annual planning meeting, which always seems to go six months into the next year, you really should think about, all right, for each one of these goals, this is how I achieve it with my employees. This is how I achieve it with my contingent. And that's really how it should be done. And sometimes those goals will align, how you would handle it with your full-time employees, how you'd handle it with your contingent workforce. But when you start figuring out those goals at that corporate level and your OKRs or whatever format you use to disseminate them, you really should start thinking about how your contingent workforce is going to execute on them as well. And then you know, from that point, if you have a mature program that's managing that, that program then has to take that and figure out ways to measure it throughout the workforce. That's how I think it should be done. I don't, I've never encountered anybody who does that, but I think that's how it should be done.
0: Well, there you go. You heard it from, that's how you do it. <laughs> <laughs> this has been great guys. We could do this for, for hours and hours, and I think we'll probably do this again towards the end of the year, or maybe early next year, but I do want to thank you guys for joining today. It's been a lot of fun, a lot of cool information that we talked about. So thank you very much for a great session. Again, thank you all for listening. Be safe out there and have a great day.
1: You've been listening to CPO Open Mic with VLine CPO, Mike Schiappa. Tune in to each episode every month by following Mike on
0: LinkedIn and at Beeline BMS on Twitter.